It's the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 32. Lauren is here. Hi. Today we're going to be talking about food and supplements and uh, hormones, you know, the, the test boosters, as they say. We have a question about that. But first, let us talk turkey. Ask Adam. Hi, Adam. My name is Christian, and I'm calling in, so to speak, from Boulder, Colorado, My question came up during a conversation with my wife tonight, wherein I was lazily heating up one of those pre-made boxes of turkey and gravy in the microwave, and something odd occurred to me. I eat turkey deli meat, that is, cold cuts, all the time, but tonight aside, I almost never eat hot turkey outside of Thanksgiving season. Conversely, I rarely eat chicken cold cuts, but I often eat hot chicken, whether fried, roasted, or grilled. Although there are exceptions, in the U.S. there does appear to be a larger cultural preference and market prevalence for cold turkey and for hot chicken. Yeah, so this is something that uh, European viewers of my programs have mentioned many times over the years. They don't understand where this, uh, this American obsession with turkey, cold sliced turkey deli meat comes from, because it is one of the main deli meats, is it not? I guess it's actually the first one I think of. Like if you go to the store to get deli meat. Turkey sandwich. Yeah. Like the first thing you ask for is like half a pound of turkey. It's right up there with the ham and the roast beef, right? Um, I don't even think roast beef is that high. Really? I don't think... Roast beef really tastes like very much. Like cold cut roast beef. Unless you get it at like a really, really good deli. I think like grocery store cold cut roast beef is not good. Dang. Hot take. A hot take. On a cold meat. Good God, woman. How are you so good at this? (laughs) That's insane. That's like, that's, that's, that's the headline right there. A hot take on a cold meat. You know? Wow. Okay. That's why you picked me. Sure. (laughs) <laughs> it's probably just too many words for the thumbnail, so yeah, oh. have to have to do something else for the thumbnail. But that was good. If this was, if we were writing a newspaper article, that would be the headline: yeah. a hot take on a cold meat. <laughs> so anyway, yes, we have this like very robust tradition of cold meats in the United States, um, thinly sliced cold meats, which I think that most that tradition mostly comes from the influence of Eastern European Jews uh, on United States culinary culture. And that influence is ginormous um, as manifested by the delicatessen, the deli, right? Um, And turkey deli meat is surely the most popular of the deli meats other than maybe ham. Um, But uh, yeah, so what's up with that? They don't really do that in Europe. That's not really a thing in Europe. I mean, I'm sure it exists, but it's not a, a staple food the way cold turkey cold cuts are in the United States. And there's actually a really clear reason for that, an economic reason for that, an agronomic reason for that. But to understand it, we have to first understand the special role that turkey occupies in American culinary culture, um, which is that as the questioner mentioned, um, we have a holiday where everybody eats turkey and it's coming up, which is our Thanksgiving holiday, which is the uh, last Thursday of November. Last Thursday of November. Or or is it the third Thursday in November? It is a Thursday in late November. One of the ends. One of those. Okay. Um, And, you know, in one sense, the, the holiday is completely unremarkable. Right, because everyone has a harvest feast. Like every every agricultural culture 
has a tradition of having a fall harvest feast. You've gathered in the harvest for the year. Uh, you know, all of the hardest work of the season is done and you're flushed with food. So you ha- you sit down and you eat a bunch of it. You have a feast, a very, very common, common thing. And Thanksgiving is simply ours in the United States. On the other hand, it's also wrapped up in a, a very complex and not entirely happy uh, uh, history of of European colonialism in the United States and genocide yeah, against gonna, Native Americans. Like genocide. That's yeah. it. That's the one. <laughs> so, so, so basically, um, yeah. So there's 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 a legend, a story about the pilgrims who were a group of English Puritan settlers who founded what they called the Plymouth Colony in modern day Massachusetts. And they, uh, after enduring some rather horrific hardships in their first year, uh, ended up getting it together to get a decent harvest. And they had uh, a harvest festival in the year 1621. And our concept of the Thanksgiving feast is ostensibly based on what is known historically about that, that first harvest feast of Thanksgiving giving thanks for the bounty that the Lord has bestowed upon us uh, via uh, all the, the, the agricultural fruits of our labors, right? And what's funny, and I did not know this until I went to research this question, is that like our concept of the, the first Thanksgiving is based exclusively on one letter written by one of the pilgrims named Winslow. Uh, and I have it here right in front of me. Actually, would you like to read it, honey? Sure. Here. Okay. It starts here with our harvest. Okay. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that so we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest of their greatest king, Massasoit, Massasoit, with some 90 men whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor upon the captain and others. So wait, is the, did they name the Massachusetts colony after the the king of the tribe that they murdered? The Wampanoags. Yeah. I guess I didn't, in, in the United States, you get all your like state education when you're in elementary school. And I, so I know a lot about Tennessee, but I lived in Massachusetts as an adult. So I didn't we did, learn yes. that stuff. I'm just going to do a quick search to make sure this is actually where it comes from. Massachusetts etymology, etymology. Um, let's see. No, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, it, it does come from the Wampanoags, but it means at the large hill in reference to the great blue hill southwest of Boston. Oh, oh. Um, Blue Hill Ave. And uh, WGBH, the most famous public broadcasting station in, in the United States, GBH stands for Great Blue Hill because that's where their tower is. I'm just surprised that you just shilled for GBH and not BUR. I was team WBUR when I was in there, but I'm not there anymore. I'm not in that fight anymore. I have no dog in that fight. Uh, so there it is. Anyways. Well, we, we almost said something very wrong, very authoritatively into a, a microphone. Well, that's what we do around that's here. That's how misinformation happens. But we checked. 
Sure so did. So now you know. Yes. We check. Anyway, so this letter from 1621. First of all, what is up with the run-on sentences? They have a lot of clauses. Wow, so many clauses. It's, it's very circular. Oh, terrible writing. Did they know it was terrible writing? It is objectively terrible writing, is it not? Just, I mean, it's very clear, I guess, if you want to stop and really look at it. And I guess if all you had to do all day That's the opposite was, of clear. If you need to stop and really look at it, it's literally the opposite of clear. But back in the day when all you had to do was read the letters you received. Oh, I see. It was like a, it was like a puzzle to do to <laughs> yeah, pass the like, time. Yeah, you're like, okay, I move this one over here and line them up. And then I figure oh, out hilarious. how many Indians came to yeah. eat how many turkeys. Exactly. But there, you say turkey. Did, did this sole written account of the first Thanksgiving feast mention turkey? Turkey, no, it said foul. Said foul. Foul. Okay. Now, foul just means bird. Was uh, turkey is a bird, right? Um, was the bird eaten by the pilgrims and their their Wampanoag hosts? Uh, was that actually a turkey? Historians have actually investigated this and Did they find the wishbone? Did they find the wishbone? <laughs> Um, that wouldn't prove anything because all birds have wishbones. Yeah, but couldn't you figure out that? I'm sure there's like science they can do on to find out if it's a turkey wishbone. I guess or that's true. A quail or a squab. A squab. <laughs> the the dominant historical thinking seems to be that the fowl in question was probably duck or goose, based upon what we know about what the Plymouth colonists were hunting and eating at the time. Though it might have been a turkey, indeed, uh, Turkey, we should re remember, although it is named after the modern nation of Turkey, Turkey is indigenous to the Americas. Turkey is from here. Um, the modern domestic turkey breed that we eat is chiefly descended from the 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 turkey species, or yeah, the turkey types. I don't know if it's species or... The turkeys that were domesticated in ancient Mesoamerica, not the eastern wild turkey that we know today in our part of the United States, um, which like you see to this day in what became of the Plymouth Colony, which is Boston, right? Like we lived in Boston for four years. And do you remember like seeing the wild turkeys yeah. in like Brookline? Yeah, crossing the street, holding up traffic. <laughs> I know. Like we're talking about like, you know, as urbanized as an environment could possibly get. I remember it was in front of, I think it was the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Oh, yeah. This just like seeing traffic backed up, like ambulances, ambulances <laughs> trying to get to the hospital and not able to get there because these damn turkeys are crossing the road in the middle of a city. And if you try to like intervene with them directly, they are tremendously aggressive, mm -hmm. right? Like they will poke your eyes out. Yeah, I would run away from a turkey before I ran away from a goose. Yeah. Because they're, I mean, they are, a, a goose has to be able to fly, whereas turkeys um, are ground birds, which is why they're so meaty. They don't have to be light enough in order to fly. Um, so, which is why we like eating them, because they are such abundant little bowling balls of meat. Uh, they're fine. And they don't fly away when you try, when you try to get them. Um, they do run away and they peck at you. But if you're motivated, as the Plymouth Colony settlers absolutely were after having... If you have muskets and bows and arrows. <laughs> yeah, all of that. Exactly. You can get them. And you get a whole lot of food from them. So it's it's conceivable that it might have been uh, 
It might have been the foul mentioned in this letter, but nobody knows, and most historians seem to think probably not. Nonetheless, eating turkey um, as a celebratory meat, as a celebratory roast, did become a tradition in the United States. Uh, for kind of obvious reasons that we've already touched upon, it's it's a very large animal, so you can get one, kill one, and feed a whole bunch of people with it. That makes sense. It's also not really good for other things, unlike chicken. Um, chickens lay eggs. Um, and so in, in historic agrarian society that had chickens, you would keep your female chickens, at least your hens, alive for as long as possible <laughs> to get out all of the eggs out of them as you possibly could. And only when they stopped laying eggs would you kill it. And at that point, it would be a, a very tough old bird and you would need to, as, as they call me sometimes, um, <laughs> And at that, you would need to stew it in order to like make it edible, which is why like most of the traditional, you know, chicken dishes are are soups or stews or that kind of thing, right? Um, so turkeys, you may be thinking, well, don't they also lay eggs? Um, and they do. <laughs> never, I never thought of that. Wow. I you, don't, you just figured they as a miraculous conception or something? Just now I'm sure they came from. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't think a lot about turkey husbandry, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's how incurious you are. <laughs> Anyways, um, turkeys do produce eggs, but way less. A, a modern domestic chicken will produce like 300 eggs a year, whereas a turkey will produce like 100. Um, they are good eggs, though. I don't know if you remember when I did that video a couple of years ago in Georgia mm -hmm. and I went down to that turkey farm, like an heirloom turkey farm oh, and they gave me an egg. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, did you eat it? I ate it. It was great. Hmm. It was just, it was, it was just like a, a, a very, a very large chicken egg with a slightly stronger taste in the yolk. Um, that was very, very delicious. And I don't know to what extent that strength of taste was a result of it being a turkey versus being an heirloom turkey versus being a turkey that, you know, lived outside on the ground eating bugs and stuff like that, that might've resulted in sort of, you know, some, some richer flavors in that yolk. Speaking of heirloom turkeys, do you remember that Thanksgiving that we are our first Thanksgiving in Boston? Yeah. And you got a fancy turkey and didn't it have some feathers on it? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, you were working at a college yep. um, in in Boston and we we got to live in it for free yeah. in this amazing apartment overlooking Boston Common. Yeah. You could see Boston Common, the state house. You could see a little bit of the Charles River and then over to Cambridge. Yeah. It was, am I mean, it, it was, was the amazing. nicest place. It was the nicest place we've ever lived in our lives. Except yeah. for this house. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, if you sold that that it was like a dorm room, but if you sold it as an apartment, well, it was a two bedroom apartment. Yeah, it I think it would go for about as much money oh, in as, Boston yeah. as we bought this house for, maybe even more. More, actually, yeah, yeah more. Come I to guess think of it. it's not as this house is nicer, but that place was more expensive. Yeah, that was insane. So we had a lot to be thankful for that year. We were, you know, <laughs> we were we were feeling good. So I walked down Charles Street into Beacon Hill, which is sort of the old colonial part of Boston. And I went to this fancy butcher shop. What was that? Was it DeLuca's? No, not DeLuca's. Um, 
Anyway, went to this fancy butcher shop on Charles Street and I was like, hey, can I order a turkey? And he said, okay, yeah. So, you know, do you want like the normal domestic turkey or do you want the heirloom turkey? Saveners. Saveners. It was Saveners. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do I look? Do I look like a rube to you? (laughs) Hit me with the hit me with the hard stuff, my man. (laughs) Order me that heirloom turkey. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, again, what do I look like to you, sir? And he said... A ding dong. A ding dong. <laughs> so I get, I pick up my heirloom turkey. I I remember like carrying it back to the apartment down Charles Street, and it was it was just beautiful, you know. It was like there, I think there was already some snow. And I'm, you know, I'm like Bob Cratchit carrying this like giant <laughs> bird over my shoulder for the two of us. For the two, no, my my parents visited. Oh, did remember? They? Yeah, yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah. So it was there. Were, there was four of us, and. I cooked this thing and yes, it had feathers, whatever. I I pulled the feathers out. It was fine. But like it rapidly filled the entire building with this very, very powerful gamey smell, um, which is usually uh, short chain fatty acids are responsible for sort of gamey smells and modern meat breeds of all kinds have been bred to kind of get those out so that it doesn't really have any smell at all. It just sort of tastes like meat. Um, And... Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it, the meat tasted normal, but the smell was like overpoweringly livery, gamey, and it went I, through the whole building. I don't remember. You don't remember this? No. Yeah. I don't really care for turkeys. So. I, do, I don't care for it. I don't it. care for it. I don't care for the turkey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, uh, that was, that was a mistake. And it, it, but it was, the good news is that it was a dorm at Thanksgiving. And no one was there. So nobody was there. Like we were, you were, you, your job was just to like make sure that the building didn't burn down like for, for those couple of days. Anyways, Turkey. <laughs> so, um, people had already eaten Turkey in the United States as a celebratory roast. Um, oh, 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 the one other thing about why turkeys are bad for eggs. Um, they have, uh. Um, oh God, what's the brooding, um, brooding behavior. So birds have an instinct to, when they lay an egg, sit Mm -hmm. on it to incubate the eggs Mm -hmm. and turkeys do that really hardcore. Domestic chickens have had that behavior bred out of them. Mm -hmm. Um, turkeys have not. So turkeys not really good for anything other than roasting whole. So that's why we eat turkey, right? Um, and then you had this absolutely fascinating woman, Sarah Hale, um, who was sort of a, a from a, a progressive New England family in the 19th century. And she did a number of things, including writing Mary Had a Little Lamb. Hmm. And uh, she like raised the money uh, for the, the Bunker Hill Monument in Boston. and Bunker Hill. Bunker Hill, which mm-hmm. isn't on Bunker Hill. It's on Breed's Hill, which is hilarious. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, And she campaigned for the first Thanksgiving in the run-up to the American Civil War. She believed that sort of a a new harvest festival tradition would unite North and South and prevent the the sundering of this great nation. And how did that work out? Many millions dead. (laughs) Yeah. Not so good. So uh, she actually, uh, the, the turkey tradition had come from a novel that she wrote. It was called Northwood. Life of North and South, and there's like a scene in it where somebody brings a turkey to the head of the table, and that's so you could view it all as book marketing on her part. Very good, very good. I'm impressed. Yes. Although not great because we remember the turkey, but not the book. So. <laughs> you done messed up, Sarah Hale. The worst. So we have this Thanksgiving tradition where everybody eats turkey. 
And then we come to Christmas, where people might also eat turkey. And this is a tradition likely inherited from the UK. There was a long-standing tradition of eating turkey at Christmas in England specifically, um, which a lot of people attribute to Charles Dickens, and he certainly would have he certainly had a big hand in popularizing it, although it predated the tradition predated Charles Dickens. But yeah, you've got a Christmas Carol where it's funny because like when I think of a Christmas Carol, I don't think of turkey. I think of goose, goose right? Because mm-hmm. that famous line, like it's a goose the size of Tiny Tim, yeah. right? But like the whole, a big plot device in in that book is that the Cratchits are going to have goose for Christmas. And that's actually an indication of their poverty. Because a goose is smaller and it's a family of eight. Mm. And like half the weight of a goose is fat, which mm. I found out one year when I made it. Oh, I remember. Oh, that. yeah. That one I remember. Yeah. Jugs and jugs of, of fat came out of this little bird. It was completely insane. Um, and yeah, uh, so what what Scrooge does at the end of that book after having been reformed is buy the biggest turkey they the, have. This turkey they have, not goose. So it was it was seen as like a level up. And fun fact about Charles Dickens and turkeys, I absolutely love this. I did not know this until I started researching this question. No, there could be fun facts about Charles Dickens and turkeys. Oh, so many. <laughs> so the last year that Charles Dickens was alive, which I believe is 1870. He ordered a turkey Mm -hmm. um, from some vendor outside of London, and the turkey did not arrive in time. And so he sent a missive, um, which I can't figure – I was not able to find out if this was a letter or a telegram. I'm going to assume it was a telegram to the parcel company. And uh, here, go ahead. You you read it, honey. What did Mr. Dickens say to the company that was supposed to bring him his turkey? In all caps, where is that turkey? It has not arrived with what looks to be about 15 exclamation points. All caps and exclamation point, exclamation point. So, okay, boomer. Yeah, really. I love that. He's a Victorian. He types like a Victorian boomer. (laughs) Love it. Love it. So, and the reason that the Charles Dickens' turkey was late was that the stagecoach that was bringing it caught on fire. Oh, and then here's the very best part of this story. Okay. So the like the you know, the parcel company looked at the situation. They were like, "Oh, this turkey is burned. We cannot bring it to Mister Dickens." But some of it is like cooked and edible. Oh my god! They sold it to the good people of Reading, England, mm. for sixpence a portion. <laughs> Oh my God, I love it. I absolutely love it. Cooked in a stagecoach fire. And people bought it. And that's the thing. If you Did need, they die if when you they need ate it? any better representation, encapsulation of how much our attitudes toward food have yeah. changed in 150 years, yeah. it's people looked at that and they were like, okay, yeah. That sounds good. I'll eat that. I'll try some of your replicated burned bird meat. Oh my God. That's a Star Trek joke for like five people out there. Anyways. Uh, so they've got a separate tradition of eating turkey for Christmas in England, and that kind of leaked over here into the United States to the point where when I was growing up, our Thanksgiving turkey roast mm-hmm. and our Christmas turkey dinner were identical. Mm-hmm. It, they, my dad just made the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty old before I realized that was kind of weird. We had turkey, I think. It's... You ate turkey at Christmas? Well, sometimes we had standing rib roast. Yeah. Ham? Did you ever do ham? No, ham's Easter. Oh. 
lamb was was Easter. No, for my us. mom doesn't like lamb. She says it's too sad. Yeah. Too <laughs> fair. Fair. Anywho, all of this is to say, we go hard on Turkey around this time of year in the United States. Mm -hmm. Massive, massive demand for Turkey. You cannot turn that production chain on like a light switch when you Mm -hmm. need it for the winter. Farmers and processors have to be able to make a living the whole rest of the year. And they have to keep breeding turkeys the whole rest of the year. You can't just like keep Adam and Eve alive. Oh, so now we've gotten to the answer now. Oh, yeah. I'm actually answering the question. <laughs> oh, Whoa. what on. Oh. All this time I was like, but why do we eat turkey cold cuts? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is what we do on the Adam Ragusea program. We we, we, we learn a bunch a of fun things journey on the way to the to thing. Here's why we eat turkey cold cuts. Exactly. Because they make turkeys all year long. Because they got to make turkeys all year long, and it's got to go somewhere. Um, a, a modern domestic turkey takes like four or five months to breed to harvest weight, raise to harvest weight, rather. And uh, yeah, you, you just got you have to keep that going all year long, and all of that meat has to go somewhere. So they turn it into cold cuts. And then I think there's other like, you know, probably because it's such a large animal and yields such large muscles, you can cut Mm -hmm. clean, large, wide slices off of it for cold cuts in a way that you can't do for chicken. On the other hand, cheap turkey cold cuts, just as there are cheap chicken cold cuts, they get around that problem by... (laughs) Blending up all the meat into what in the meat industry they call a meat emulsion, even though it's not technically an emulsion, and uh, and then reconstituting (laughs) it into like a little tube, and then cooking it, and then slicing it. Yeah, so there you go, Arby's style. It's gonna be a while till I eat a turkey sandwich again. (laughs) I love Arby's, by the way. That is no knock against the good people of Arby's. So there you go. That is uh, okay. That's that's it. That's the truth. This is a fun journey. Even if it uh, makes you a little bit uncomfortable, that's that's the truth. Uh, But speaking of comfort, uh, I am feeling particularly comfortable at the moment because I am enjoying wearing my my underoos, my undies (laughs) from Me Undies, sponsor of this episode. Uh, Lauren's on camera here for those of you listening to the uh, the podcast, and she's going to go ahead and pull out some some me undies. <laughs> I'm wave, wave Adam's underpants around in front of a camera. We both wear me undies. I, I am also. I did not know we were doing this ad, and I am also wearing. <laughs> you are literally wearing me undies with unicorns on them. right now. Yes. So the the particular pair that we see in front of us right now is a muted pair. You can get like what they call like like classic colors and and you know prints and stuff like that that don't draw a lot of attention to. Your you're, you're, da- you're down there. But why would you want that? Why would you want that? Exactly. So they have all of these fun prints too. I have um, wine and cheese underpants. I have bicycle underpants. Um, uh, yeah. I also have, what else? See, now I can't remember any of them. <laughs> I have these ones that have a very cool 70s pattern on mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah. So they, popcorn. I have lots popcorn of whimsy. <laughs> they are underpants with whimsy. And they're um, so soft. And this is the main thing. They are so unbelievably soft. I I cannot handle friction in my <laughs> jungle area. Oh, it makes me very uncomfortable. Probably as uncomfortable as it is for you to hear me talk about my jungle area. Stop. And and I don't get that at all with me undies. It's just so soft and like there's just no friction. Everything is nice and cool to the touch and smooth. Super it stays super where it's great. supposed to like 
if there are any ladies listening, if any ladies are listening, they don't like creep up. Don't creep up, yes. Yeah. Nor do they constrict. Uh, and they, they have great size ranges going from extra small to 4XL. Uh, you can also sign up for their free to join Me Undies membership, should you want, where you get a monthly subscription that sends new styles right to your door. Plus, enjoy up to 30% off on virtually everything that they make, free shipping and returns on every order, early access to new launches, and exclusive members only sales. Me Undies has a great offer for you, our, the listeners of the Adam Ragusea pod. For any first time purchase, you can get 20% off plus free shipping and returns. 20% off your first order with free shipping, 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go to MeUndies.com slash Ragusea. That's MeUndies.com slash Ragusea. Get them as a holiday gift for you and your, your if you have a special person, you can match. Matching underpants. I know. It's adorable. We're those people. None of our underwear matches oh. that I know of. But I just want to say as a follow-up to this MeUndies ad, when you found out that you were getting MeUndies as a sponsor, I was very excited because I had always wanted to try them because I had heard on other podcasts. And I said, oh, do you think they'll send me some free underpants too? And you said, no, you can buy some with money. And so I did. So all of my MeUndies I paid for with actual dollars because they're good. <laughs> anyway, thank you, MeUndies, for, for both the underpair and, and the money. Yeah. You know, well, we appreciate your, your support of the work that we do here on the pod. But, uh, okay, speaking of, uh, speaking of junk and the junkle area, uh, <laughs> we have a question uh, from a young man about uh, – he's been seeing a lot of YouTubers uh, doing ads for testosterone boosters. Hi, Adam. My name is Badr from Morocco. My question is about uh, natural testosterone boosters because I've seen quite a shift lately in the narrative about their efficacy. Some of the people who used to say they are a waste of time are now promoting them. So obviously my question is, is what does the scientific literature say or know about test boosters like ashwagandha or tonkatali? And if they do work, does, does the boost they provide really make a difference? Assuming you're already in the normal range. Thanks. Thank you, Bader. Um, I will answer your question, but the first thing I want to address is, uh, you know, you mentioned this in your email to me that you had seen lots of YouTubers advertising uh, test boosters, uh, dietary supplements that, that promise to boost your testosterone. And a lot of people tend to notice that, uh, that's, you know, a, a whole bunch of YouTubers will at the same time advertise the same product. And a lot of people read something nefarious into that. And I just want to make it clear like why that happens and that at least from my view, there's nothing nefarious about it at all, which is just that like they're doing ad buys. Like the companies that want to advertise products do, they don't just come to one YouTuber. They have an agency usually that goes to another agency that represents a lot of YouTubers. And they say, hey, we want to do a campaign for this product. And so who, who can you give us? And the agency will say, oh, well, I can give you Adam Ragusea and this person and this person and this person. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, and they, that's, they do one buy that spreads out across lots of different channels. There's, there's nothing, there's no, it's, it's nothing any more nefarious than when you see the same TV commercial on lots of different channels at once. Uh, it's just the case that, you know, unless you're like PewDiePie or, 
or Mr. Beast, you none of us have enough audience to like move a ton of product mm -hmm. by ourselves. It's we you know we're part of a broader campaign, and that's just how that works. And there's just nothing inherently bad about that, unless you think there's something inherently bad about capitalism, where. That's a different That's conversation. That's a different conversation, <laughs> and you have you know, legitimate arguments that, that one could make, but we'll set those aside for now. So anyways, um, the, the, the bigger question, or the, the more important question, Botter, that you raise is uh, these products that promise to boost your testosterone, products that are not steroids, right, uh, that are like legal dietary supplements. So there is a study out of the University of Western Ontario from 2017, where they just they looked at a whole bunch of of on the market over the counter dietary supplements that promise to boost testosterone. And it's not like they did a clinical trial on every single one of them. They just you know they looked at the ingredients and sort of figured out like you know what scientific basis is there for 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 these ingredients and there is a scientific basis for a lot of it uh, if you look at these products mostly what they are is just vitamins um, particularly B vitamins zinc uh, iron these uh, B, vitamin B6 in particular um, these are vitamins that are totally crucial and needed by your body for hor for hormone synthesis and if you are low in them, if you are deficient in them, then that would absolutely manifest in depressed hormone levels. Uh, normal testosterone for a gentleman, such as myself, um, is generally considered to be 300 and 1,000 nanograms per deciliter of blood, which I don't know what any of that means. Sure. Yeah. But between 300 and 1,000 is a good score. Um, for example, uh, my testosterone, when I first measured it, which was about two years ago was, I think 650, which was like, you know, dead center middle of the reference range. Um, and, uh, in the last couple of years, as I've tracked it, it's actually like plummeted, um, which is not to, to be unexpected. Why did I have to do that as a double negative? Can you fix my writing as I go, honey? Which is not unexpected. Okay. Which is No. Which is to be expected. To, oh, sorry. Which is there we go. Which is to be expected. Okay, uh, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, catapulting toward middle age into middle age. I'm forty. And also, in the last two years, your stress level has skyrocketed. Yes, so that that could be a a, a factor, mm -hmm. but like my, it's down to like the low three hundreds. Like I'm almost out of the reference range, which is why like I'm going to see an endocrinologist and I'm going to you know look at potential corrective things that could be done about that. One of them probably is not take more vitamins, right? Like I, I get enough, I get enough of these micronutrients. I get plenty of B vitamins, probably chiefly because I eat animal products. If you don't, then yeah, you, you should be taking a B vitamin complex. Um, and, and that would, would help. Um, the question is, is like, does, does ultra dosing going way beyond the recommended daily minimums as some of these products do, will that result in hormone boosts above and beyond what you would get from simply not being anemic, basically? Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of literature indicating that you know some super high dosing could help you a bit, but it's not a very strong correlation. And in it, in, when when you know when people take supplements or eat a, a diet rich in like meat or uh, leafy greens, uh, mustard, you know these are these are all all foods that supply those necessary kind of mustard. raw mustard. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Um, these are all foods that supply the necessary kind of raw ingredients that your body needs in order to to synthesize hormones, um, biosynthesize hormones. And yes, people can raise their testosterone like a few nanograms per deciliter, mm-hmm. which is just not a lot. Assuming that what you're after here is what these products usually promise, which is get your manhood back, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, cool. you, you know, there's one thing that your lady wants. It's for you to be more of a loud, mean, angry a-hole. Well, I mean, I do read a lot of romance novels. Mm. And I can... T- <laughs> no. No. The key is, in the romance novels, is you have to balance it. Mm. You have to be outwardly masculine, but inwardly a cinnamon roll. That's what they say. That's, <laughs> a cinnamon roll? Yeah, that's that's, that's the, the lingo. That's like the sweet, ah, snuggly, wow, cinnamon roll. Mm-hmm. He's such a cinnamon roll. Such a cinnamon roll. That's why you got so offended. I once called a picture of you. I referred to you as a cinnamon roll, and I think you thought I was referring to your appearance, and I wasn't. I was like, you're so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and doughy in the center. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, it, incidentally, there was a study that that was done years ago, but it made the rounds on the internet this past week mm-hmm. um, for some reason. Where they look, they they took a whole bunch of like Wall Street trader guys, mm-hmm. and they had them do like investment simulations, investment games, and some of them uh, they gave them like a testosterone gel that you rub on your skin and and it gets testosterone into your blood and some of them got like a placebo gel and the group that got the testosterone gel like burned the economy burned the the economy to the ground like (laughs) like completely made all of these unbelievably aggressive and uh, reckless trades (laughs) inflated massive bubbles like it was it was it's it was it was a finding so startlingly strong that like you you need zero scientific literacy to look at these graphs and see it like it's just like i'm sure it's making the rounds because of the crypto bubble oh 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 there you go exactly yeah yeah multi-level marketing for dudes <laughs> instead of instead of it being yoga pants yeah you can get see fake money ladies are like leggings tupperware dudes are like pretend things on the internet <laughs> You know what's funny though is that it's like if you talk to dudes that are on steroids, like I like a la- last last podcast episode was with Dr. Mike Isertel from uh, Renaissance Periodization. Dr. Mike is on the sauce; he makes no makes no illusions about it, right? Um, and what he'll say is that like his psychological reaction to it is not anger; it's anxiety. Oh. He's in a constant state of like low level panic. Why is that worth it? Uh, I think in the case of like Dr. Mike. You know, he's he has a brand that he needs to maintain in order to, you know, uh, do do his business. And that involves looking like an action figure. And in order to look like an action figure, he's like constantly on the edge of a panic attack. That's awful. I know. I'm so sorry for him. Yeah, that's not good. But I, I would guess that that is the kind of thing that happens when through uh, exogenous hormone supplementation, mm-hmm. you get your you get your serum testosterone up over a thousand nanograms per deciliter um when that all that kind of weird stuff starts to happen to you but also you start to just grow extremely large and muscly Mm -hmm. assuming that you are providing growth stimulus to your muscles by doing resistance training if you don't then other other things happen 
So um, the promise that these supplements make is that they might not explicitly make the promise, but the marketing, the packaging, everything about it says, take this and you'll be jacked and so do, I've never sexually virile. I've never heard, like, obviously this has never been marketed to me. I've never heard of this or seen it. So let me just guess. Female reference range for testosterone, by the way, is between, I think it's between 20 and 70 nanograms per deciliter okay. instead of 300 to 1,000 for men. <laughs> so are the packages for these things, are they like black with like metallic or do they look like they're super they're... girthy you know mm. really really kind of they wide look like weight plates or something yeah, yeah that's kind of maybe what they look like uh, a little longer than that um oh. yeah yeah oh yeah got it got it now there you go got it now <laughs> so you know yes i just have to say mm-hmm. that people whenever i feel like Marketing is so focused on all the dumb things women are convinced of. <laughs> oh, no, no. Men are convinced of so many dumb things. Like, I'm just because you guys get your shampoo, body wash, and conditioner all in one bottle, that doesn't mean you're not still getting dumb marketing Indeed. messages. Indeed. So the answer is, based on what science we have, no. A product like that is not going to get you to you know, sort of bodybuilding levels of serum testosterone or anywhere close. They could result in a slight increase. Um, Unless potentially you are actually like clinically deficient in vitamin B6, for example, which some people might be, in in which case, yeah, you you maybe could see some some clinically appreciable improvement. That's probably like the thing that your doctor would prescribe for you first would be to say like, hey, take take a vitamin B supplement and let's see how you're doing in a couple of months. just because it's a supplement and just because it has in the United States, at least that FDA disclosure language that says this product is not designed or not intended to treat or prevent any illness. I I hate that because the thing is, it actually absolutely is like, they just say that for legal reasons, but like, if you're, well, it's because supplement marketing has gone beyond, like if you take a B complex, it will increase the amount of B complex in your body to, if you take a B complex, it'll make your hair grow and make you taller and make you cooler. Exactly. Yes. No, there there are absolutely questionable claims and we're discussing some of those questionable claims right now, but just because something in the United States is sold as a dietary supplement and therefore legally has to have that disclosure language on it, that doesn't mean it's snake oil. Right. right? I mean, iron Um, says that, but every pregnant woman knows you have to take iron. Right. Like if you're, if you're pregnant or intending to become pregnant, your doctor will say, take a folic acid acid. supplement because this has been shown very strongly in research literature to prevent birth defects. If you have, you know, if you have sufficient folate in your, uh, I don't know if it's folate or folic acid, they're not exactly the same thing. It's one of those two things. If you have sufficient folate, full, full, whatever it is inside your body or in the very early days of pregnancy, which is why they tell you to take it before you get pregnant, actually. Um, and like, and like if you, you, your doctor will tell you to do this, you'll go to the store, you'll buy the folic acid supplement, and it will say on it, this product is not intended to treat or prevent any disease, but it is. Mm-hmm. They just have to say that because they can't sell it as a drug. Because if you want to sell something as a medicine in the United States and, and in Europe, um, it has to go through a prohibitively expensive uh, approval process involving clinical trials and blah, 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 blah. And no one is going to do that for a vitamin because you can't patent a vitamin and mm-hmm. therefore sell it for a ton of money to recoup the costs uh, involved in getting approval for the drug. Mm. So that's why, okay? 
That's why all kinds of things that are good for you and, and could absolutely be your doctor would totally tell you to do them are sold as dietary supplements, not medicine, and they have that FDA disclosure language on it. Doesn't mean that they are BS. That said, assuming that you are like a, a person who gets your recommended daily values of all your vitamins and minerals, there's little to no evidence that a test booster, over-the-counter test booster, that doesn't secretly contain illegal steroids, which like <laughs> it's, it's been shown that lots and lots of over-the-counter you know, strength supplements have hormones or pro-hormones in them illegally. And indeed, like there's the, 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 the CEO of Redcon One, which is a really prominent supplement, you know, muscle building supplement brand is presently sitting in federal prison because his previous, yeah, his previous company, I think they were called Blackstone, got caught putting illegal stuff into their over-the-counter supplements. Blackstone. Mm. wonder what that was referring to. <laughs> Anywho, uh, so assuming that like you're you're it's not one of those, <laughs> yeah. There's little to any evidence that uh, it's going to help you out in any kind of dramatic way. Um, but I'm not talking about any specific product. You know, there there could be interesting emerging products on the market that do things that have not been, uh, t you know, well established by science. But that doesn't necessarily mean that th they won't be one day. And and cool, whatever. Uh, but that's what I can say generally about those supplements. Uh, I hope that you heard that message. If it's some, you're the kind of person who needs to hear it. Should you need to hear a little bit better, you might consider uh, picking up a pair of headphones from sponsor of this episode, Raycon. Hey, the 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 gift giving season is upon <laughs> us, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And if you have an audio lover in your life, you might consider getting them a pair of Raycons, such as these Raycon Everyday earbuds that uh, I use all the time which are absolutely fantastic. They fit in your ear really, really well because I, I usually use them when working out and you don't want them slipping out. They, they, they form a perfect seal in your ear. They do not slip out. But the cool thing about them is that um, if you need to remain like aware of your environment, like say your wife is calling you and saying, you know, come do something, right? Um, you know, you want to be able to hear that in, in a certain situation. And so what they have is a mode called awareness mode, where uh, it'll actually allow in electronically some of the sound from your environment. So you still have that airtight seal in your ear canal that keeps the head from, from, from falling out. But at the same time, sound from your environment gets in, so you don't get in trouble with your, with your loved ones for not responding to urgent missives. <laughs> um, but Raycon makes all kinds of other cool uh, audio things. Uh, if you go to buyraycon.com slash Ragusea show, check out the bundles that they have there. They have got like they've got special bundles on sale right now uh, that you can get for 30% off, including there's there's one that's like an audiophile bundle that has the earbuds plus an over-the-ear headphone for when you want you know, a, 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 a slightly, a slightly higher fi experience and you don't, uh, you know, you don't need the portability of earbuds. They have the athlete bundle, which is the earbuds plus this awesome belt that you can store your earbuds in plus your wallet and your keys and everything when you go out running or whatever, really cool bundles that those are all 30% off. Those are special Raycon holiday bundles. Uh, however, uh, for anything else on the site that you would want to buy, you can get 20% off site wide by using the code early BF. 
So go to buyraycon.com slash show and use code EARLYBF to get 20% off site-wide, 20% off any Raycon product, which is something that almost never happens. Or you can save even bigger if you look at the holiday bundles, the product bundles. Think about it for gift giving. Absolutely great stocking stuffers. You get 30% off of those. So code is EARLYBF at buyraycon.com slash show. 20% off anything, 30% off of the holiday bundles. That's buyraycon.com slash show. Thank you, Raycon. So uh, we have one more question for the day, Lauren, and uh, I believe this one is for you. For me? Hey, Adam. This is Rachel from Oregon, but currently living in upstate New York. I hope it's okay, but I have a question for Lauren, who's published six novels. My partner received his PhD in sociology and wrote a dissertation that he wants to make into a book for a popular audience. Neither of us knows the first thing about publishing, so I wondered if Lauren had any advice on this matter. What is the process of finding publishers? What are the pros and cons of working with publishers versus self-publishing? Are there any resources she'd suggest if we decide to go the self-publishing route? Thanks. Big topic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Wow. Gosh, we could do a whole show about this. Okay. So first of all, fiction and nonfiction are very different. Um, I know a little bit about nonfiction just from being in this world for a very long time. Um, So with fiction, you want to write the whole thing. Um, With nonfiction, it's it's more likely that you can go off of a proposal. But your first step if you want to do traditional publishing is to find a literary agent. Um, Luckily, that's very easy to begin to do on the internet. Um, To find a literary agent, um, you can subscribe to something called Publishers Marketplace, which is a website that tells you you know, all the agents who are on there, you can find who represented which books or what sales are happening just so you can sort of start keeping abreast of the industry. Um, But that does cost money. One of the free things that I always tell people to do is if there are um, authors that you love or books that are similar to yours, so maybe other, you know, pop sociology books that you um, admire or think are interesting, go to the bookstore, pick up that book, look in the back to the acknowledgments, 99.9% of authors will thank their agent. If they don't thank their agent, it's probably because you don't want that agent. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and so you can make a list of agents. Um, Almost every agent will be online. You can look up and you can query them via email. Um, A lot of, everyone will want a query letter. So you'll need to be able to write a pitch. You know, this is what my book is. This is what I think what audience it would appeal to and what kind of market it would have. Um, And then each agent will have on their website instructions for either just send the query letter or send a query letter in the first five pages or the first chapter or the first 50 pages. You want to follow their instructions to the letter because their assistant is probably going through all of their slush pile and will weed out everything that doesn't follow the instructions. So follow those like sometimes they'll say attach it as a pdf sometimes they'll say drop it into the body of the email follow all those rules um so that's if you want to go traditional publishing and then i probably wouldn't give more advice than that on nonfiction, just because i am not as familiar and once you have an agent they do handle, what they say yeah they handle everything else and that's what's great about it so hold on just, agents will actually look at like cold call emails like oh yeah from from people from just normals yeah. it doesn't you don't have to know a guy who no. knows a guy 
No. Okay. Nope. Mm-mm. Um, I'll, I would say, you know, I, I don't know percentages, but a good amount of people get their agent just from blind queries. Okay. Um, and it takes time, um, but that's the way. I mean, it's much easier now than when you used to have to send a self-addressed stamped envelope and your manuscript <laughs> and <laughs> off into the mail, and they would literally open it and read it um, with email. It's much easier now. Plus, you can you don't have to buy a book of agent addresses anymore. You just go on the internet and find all that stuff. What's like a way that they can sort of show through their email, maybe even in the subject line, that they, they that they know what they're doing. They're not one of it's not you're, they're not a bot. They're not an idiot. Is there like an industry lingo that they can use to communicate that they know what they're doing? Um, well, some agents will tell you like put this in the subject line so that they can easily weed through. Um, your query letter um, that is you know for non. I can only speak for fiction, but for nonfiction, go online, search, you know, examples of nonfiction query letters. There are established editors, freelance editors who will, you can pay to read your query letter and edit it and help you punch it up if you think you need that. You can also find friends who are also in the publishing space who will do that with you. Um, But there's definitely a format to the query letter that you want to follow and you can find all of that online. Um, so yeah, that's, that's traditional publishing. Um, and then if you're interested, which which has its flaws, it does. Um, again, I'm speaking from the experience of fiction, which is totally different. Um, you know, nonfiction can be its own beast because it's based so much on what they call platform. So like, um, what established audience do you already have? Are you big on Twitter for as long as that still lasts. <laughs> it might not even be there by the time we end this podcast. Um, or like, do you have a blog? Or are you big on Instagram? Or or are you a professor at XYZ University? Um, and, you know, you've right. published a lot. So and- for example, like um, our, our, our old friend Celeste Headley. Yes. Who is a, an old radio colleague of mine mm-hmm. and you know, kind of a buddy. And she's someone who did a TED talk or a TEDx talk, which is like the local TED talks Mm -hmm. about how to have a better conversation. Um, I think that's what that was about. I think it was how to talk to people who disagree with you or something. Certainly a lot of it addressed that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it like went viral. Mm -hmm. And so that was her platform. Mm -hmm. You know, then she was able to go to publishers and say, I've already got this like viral video talking about this topic. Let me write a book about this topic. And she did. And it was a massive hit. Mm -hmm. And you know, and she's off to the races. She's now, that's, that's what she does. Yeah. Or yeah. If you're a professor who, uh, a faculty member at a university who, you know, got interviewed on the today show about your topic, obviously that's a reach one, but, um, you usually want to do that when your book is already available for sale, right? You know, or if, (laughs) if you were part of a study that went you know, was huge and was in all the papers and New York Times talked about it, then right. you can reach out and um, those kind of things. Um, so if if you're in, I would recommend for nonfiction, go that route first because self-publishing nonfiction, like self-publishing is really great in certain spaces. So like kid, uh, kid lit and young adult have a harder time, adult romance, is obviously the leading um, independent publisher market. Um, horror and mystery and thrillers, those all have space. Um, nonfiction is a harder sell just because people aren't really looking for that in independent publishing as much. And also maybe 
that's like one area of publishing where it's probably still valuable valuable to have the imprimatur mm-hmm. of some large yeah, institution that says, "Hey, this is the, this the, is the, true." The claims in this book are <laughs> ah, whoa, <laughs> giant coffee it's disaster. So cold in my foot. <laughs> we'll be right back. Oh my god. Was that like a that was that a freaking pumpkin spice chai? It smells like pumpkin spice in no, here now. No, it was just a regular chai. Wow. Oh. I always said uh, chai smells like or tastes like Thanksgiving. Well, there you go. That's how very we cinnamony. <laughs> we ended the podcast where we began. That's 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 called a narrative arc, is it not? You know, I have been such a brat about this brand new carpet. I mean, like, don't take any food downstairs. Don't. I don't want anybody. No money shoes. And out now of it. there's milk and in I it. Dumped a whole chai. Oh. Oh, good stuff. All right. Anywho, so we were saying that, like, yeah, uh, not, right, we, nonfiction we, publishing is an area in which it might be useful to have the yeah. imprimatur of a large institution saying, we think the contents of this book are basically factually correct. Now, you could argue... Interesting. Oh, yeah? They don't fact check at major publishers. I know. It's 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 all it's all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Which is why you have all these politicians writing books with chock-a-block questionable claims in them, and they publish them anyway. Like, uh, a couple years ago, there was a cookbook that came out from a, like, natural food Instagrammer, and it was all about foraging. And in it, she had information about eating a poisonous, will-kill-you mushroom, and oh. they had to recall the book. Wow. Because they don't fact check it. They're like, we, you're the expert. We assume you know. Yeah, so <sighs> this is why, I mean, to be rather brutal about it, you know, this is why if, if you're a person in traditional publishing who keeps sending me emails about doing a cookbook, of which there are many of you, um, this is one of the reasons why I'm not super interested. I'm not really convinced that of what you do anymore um it seems to me that well also that's not a project you want to spend your time on that's true but it's also it's like the main thing that traditional publishing offers you right is it basically financing the project you get an advance that pays you as you write the book well and keep in mind that for 99 percent of people looking to write a book they do not have the finances to produce some of uh, an object, especially if you're talking about a cookbook, mm-hmm. as good looking and professional and nice to hold as what a traditional publisher can do. Right. That's not the same for fiction. Anybody for almost zero dollars can make a really nice paperback these days. Um so if you are going to independently publish. Um, and, and you can finance the project yourself, yeah. which you could for a nonfiction yeah. book, which is not a glossy cookbook, yeah. right? But I mean, the the costs for that would ultimately be, I mean, you'd want to pay um, at, at minimum a copy editor or potentially a developmental editor to read over it with you. That can be, you know, anywhere from 500 to $2,500, depending. Right. Um, Publishers also provide editors, which is good. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs an editor, but you can hire an editor. There's a very well, robust marketplace out there of, of good editors for hire. Yeah. Let me just say, publishers don't provide editors. Oh. I would, you work directly with an editor in traditional publishing. Like you sell the book to an editor who wants to edit your book. You're not just selling it to Random House and then they assign it. How is that not providing an editor? Because... The way I see it and in my experience, the editor really has their hands in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think the editors I've worked with have been incredible and have really I don't the book would not be what it was without that particular editor working on it. Um And you don't think that you can hire an editor freelance of the same well, again, level of quality and involvement? Sure. Um I 
you have to be a little more discerning because mm. I have noticed from being in the publishing space for a long time is that um, I'm an editor is a thing a lot of writers say when they're not making a lot of money writing anymore. <laughs> oh, burn. Now, there are some of those writers. Like, I just hired a, a writer to be an editor, and she is incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's not to say writers can't be editors, but um, you want to be discerning yes. when you hire an editor and you know you're getting a good editor when you are working with traditional publishing and the other thing that traditional publishers ostensibly do is market your book mm -hmm. but they don't really do that very much these days right they really depend on you and your your social media or whatever to sell the book it depends um a uh, how do i say this <laughs> and, st and still work in publishing um Publishing right now, the business model is such that publishing will buy an array of books for a season. It's a spaghetti factory. They buy a bunch of spaghetti. They throw it against a wall. No. No? No. They have a couple plates of spaghetti that they're like, this is really good spaghetti. Ah. We're going to tell everybody how good this spaghetti is. We're going to pay a lot of money to make sure this spaghetti gets in front of on, on everyone's menu. Um, and the rest of the spaghetti- They just throw against the wall. No. <laughs> that one they send to librarians and reviewers and bloggers and hope that they get and you know if those librarians and reviewers and bloggers say hey this is good spaghetti and they start telling people about it then they might start spending money to tell people about the spaghetti and get it on the menu or they might be like ah that word of mouth is enough right and then for another in which case you could say that a strand of spaghetti had stuck to the wall well i was just going to say the rest <laughs> of the books are the spaghetti that throw at the wall okay Oh, I see. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Some of some of the spaghetti they pay for ads in New York Times. Some of the spaghetti they just send to New York Times reviewers, food reviewers, and the rest of the spaghetti they throw at the offices of the New York Times from the outside and let it drip down the windows and hope someone inside goes, "That spaghetti on my window looks kind of good." I don't think we can end it any better than that. Nice. But if you want to, thank you. If you want to self-publish, um, there's a ton of information online. Um, Amazon and Kindle is the obvious place to start, in which you will pay zero dollars to get started, and it can't hurt you. But don't self-publish unless you're sure you don't want to traditionally publish, because for the most part, unless you're writing sexy romance, uh, traditional publishers will not pick up your nonfiction book if it's already been available. There it is. Should you like me to and Lauren to pick up your question, <laughs> you may send it to askadamquestions at gmail, askadamquestions at gmail. Please send a video or an audio file. Um, people have said, like, you know, can I just send a text and uh, like a text email? And my 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 response is like kind of no. Like if you want to be on a radio show, you gotta you gotta you gotta make sound, you know. Um, that said, you know I I will consider extraordinary text only mm -hmm. questions, uh, especially if they're from someone who, for one reason or another, really can't express themselves verbally uh, in, in in this particular context for whatever reason. But in general, yes, please send an audio or a video to ask Adam questions at Gmail. And uh, let's see, uh, uh, early next week we're gonna do sort of a long-awaited video about uh, kind of the, well, it's sort of a drag, but about PFAS chemicals, uh, these forever chemicals that are associated with nonstick coating production uh, that are in our environment and everywhere and killing us all the time, which isn't great. 
And uh, yeah, that's real uplifter. Yeah, the the third and final of my little trilogy from Michigan. Uh, got a lot of material out of twenty four hours in Michigan. Yeah, uh, feeling pretty good about that. And uh, I feel pretty good about uh, you being here, honey. And oh, I feel thanks. good about you being here, dear audience. Make good choices. Talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>